Welcome to the Westside Investors Network. Win your community of investing knowledge for growth. This is the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast for real estate professionals by real estate professionals. This show is focused on the next step in your career, investing. Thank you for listening. And please, if you like our content, rate us on your podcast provider. Just a quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are for educational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any shares or securities, make or consider any investments or take any other action. And now, AJ and Chris Shepard. Our next speaker is a multifamily investor and partner at Good Samaritan Capital. He is also working as a software developer relations at Intel, where he started an investment education club for real estate investing. Here to discuss their business strategy of partnership with established operators and how to reduce taxes for W-2 earners. Please welcome Daniel Holmund. All right. Today, we've got Daniel Holmund on the show with us. Daniel is a partner at the Good Samaritan Capital LLC. Daniel, thanks for being on the show today. I know that you do a lot more in real estate. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about yourself, what else you're doing, and how you got into the business? Yeah. Thanks, AJ. Uh, thanks for uh, letting me come on this podcast. Uh, Chris, you too. So my name is Daniel Homland. As you mentioned, I'm an investor and a partner in Good Samaritan Capital. We're a commercial property acquisition firm where we go about trying to help people find great deals and safe places to put their capital that gives great tax deferred returns. So we're in the process. Historically, we've acquired a lot of multifamily. Right now, we're up to about 2,600 units of multifamily property. But we're also looking at industrial flex space and other sectors of the commercial world. Do you want me to, to just go right into like how I got started or... Yeah, absolutely. Wonderful. Cool. I got started probably, I'll go back to when I just graduated from college. I was a person who would buy single family homes and I'd own them for a little bit and kind of turn them over. And then to to make a long story really short, I moved overseas and I found that I could do hard money loans in order to support my family while we were working as volunteers overseas. And that was right about the time of the 2008 crash where everything came tumbling down. My rehabbers started dodging my calls at that point. And I found out, you know, the time to find out or you find out what your partner is like when things are going poorly, not when things are Mm. going great. So I'd done, I think, five, I think five deals where I had loaned them the money, 80% of the purchase price of a home. They fixed it up. I got a six-month balloon loan where they were going to pay it back in six months with 15% annual interest in a point. So I was doing pretty good. I was I was getting a couple you know thousand dollars every six months for lending out that money, and then suddenly they decided, hey, we're not going to pay you back. You know, I, once I got a hold of them on the phone after they got were finished dodging my calls, they said, hey, don't you know that the entire economy, real estate economy, is crashing right now? I've got houses that are going underwater. I can't give you your money back. And I said, oh, well, that's interesting. Are you going to deed me the house? And he went, no, no, I'm not going to deed you the house. (laughs) Oh, okay. So I'm going to foreclose on you. Is that what you're saying? And he went, yeah, but you know, I know the court system over here in Florida better than you do. You're overseas. It'll cost you 11 grand in 12 months of your life in order to go through the process or you can pay me 11 grand right now. 
<laughs> so I found my partner blackmailing me, basically, or at least that's how I considered it, for 11 grand to get out of the deal. And that's an important lesson because it gives you a lot of insight into what's your worst case scenario. When you've got a real estate deal, you know, real estate deals, in my opinion, the worst case scenario is a whole lot better than the stock market. In the stock market, your stock can go to zero. <laughs> in real estate, you have collateral, you have insurance, you have all sorts, you have a mortgage potentially that you can foreclose on. There are ways that you can get your money back in this asset class that you just can't with a lot of paper assets. So I ended up putting that money into escrow. He put the deed into escrow and we swapped. And then around 2016, I started getting interested in multifamily. I'm just interested in that. So how long did you end up holding that property? I held it free and clear until 2015. You know, I got about 1300 bucks a month in rent on it all during the downturn. And then when the market came back, it dropped about 60% of its value in the Florida market. So it was seriously underwater, but I held it free and clear and was getting good rent off of it. And so I just held it until the property value recovered. And then I sold it. Took about a year off. (laughs) (laughs) I did the same thing with a property in Tucson, Arizona. I bought it. I owned it free and clear. I didn't have to get it, like get it back from a flipper because it wasn't from a hard money loan, but I literally just sold it last year because finally it was worth more than I paid for it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm sorry to interrupt. So in 2016, you got interested in multifamily. Well, and and let me go back. The lesson there is, you know, when times are hard, have long-term debt. You know, if, if you can't have your place free and clear, which I don't actually recommend, I think debt gives you leverage, which is a great benefit to real estate, but have long-term debt so you can get through bad times. Yeah. And so I I took about a year off because I was feeling a little burned or just tired out of real estate, but I've got the real estate bug. And so in 2017, I started a multifamily acquisition firm, Good Samaritan Capital. I'm sorry. No, I, that was in 2018. I started investing in LPs. So in other people's deals in 2017, and I did that a couple of times and then decided I wanted to do this as general partner and put in the, the elbow grease. And so I started Good Samaritan Capital in 2018. And then I also started up the Willamette Investors Network in Portland (laughs) over on the west side. We called ourselves a win. (laughs) That's such a great acronym. Right? (laughs) I'll have to show you my logo. (laughs) Because anyway, it looks a lot like yours. It's the, the, the words win. Uh, anyway, so, and, th- and then in 2019, I also started the real estate club at Intel, which is where I work full time. I work in artificial intelligence and video servers at Intel. And so I've run the club there every single Friday since September of 2019. We had 49 events on Friday last year and 50 the year before that. And so far this year, we haven't missed a Friday. It's usually the Friday after Thanksgiving we don't do. So we've run that club. I've been able to meet a lot of people in this industry. Obviously, I go to conferences as well. But during that time, my firm has had a goal of acquiring one large multifamily property, 100 units or greater, every quarter. 
and we have done that so far. We are we are on our 14th acquisition now, and it's been it's been a wild ride. It's been a lot of networking, and it's been a lot of evaluating and looking for value, and making that value available to investors. So that's my story in short. So, what is your favorite part about real estate investing? My favorite part, there's a lot of things to like about real estate investing. I like talking to investors. There are a lot of people out there who want to put their cash in somewhere that's diversified, that's not in the stock market. Particularly in the high-tech area, everybody thinks about stocks and very few people think about real estate because real estate takes time. And high-tech people and people that have you know long W-2 jobs don't have a lot of time. But with passive investing, you can put money into real estate and just be sent a check and, and a newsletter each month or each quarter. And so I enjoy talking to investors. I really enjoy seeing the project uh, take hold and take shape, get those weekly reports and see you know, exactly where we are. Sometimes there's problems that we have to work through. Sometimes it's, it's great news. The other thing that I really like is tax savings. <laughs> I like to pay as little in taxes as possible. I'm hoping this, this year or maybe next year, I'll actually get down to zero taxes. Cool. So, but you're still working at Intel. I am. Yes. And so are, so, are you working full time? Yes, I am. I'm working full time. And so are you wanting to go in a tax direction or a time management direction here with us? Well, let's, let's go in the tax direction first and then we All can right. go into time management. Three things. So your viewers probably know that when you invest passively within a deal, the IRS only allows you to, there are three categories of income, at least in terms of taxation here. There's, there's earned income, capital gains income, and rental income or passive income. And when you invest into a syndication, the syndication is going to give you a certain amount of depreciation, which is wear and tear on the building that the IRS allows you to deduct on your income statement. And that deduction counts against other passive income. So one big problem that we have, you know, if you're working at W-2 is that, hey, this, this deduction isn't actually offsetting my earned income, right? You can mm -hmm. only deduct earned income gains from earned income losses from earned income gains, capital gains losses from capital gains, and passive losses from passive gains. So there's, there's a couple of different things that you can do, and uh, all of them take work. I'm actually following three different strategies to reduce my taxes. The first thing that I'm doing is my wife is working towards getting a real estate professional status. Uh, and that that's one thing you can do if, if you have a partner who's willing to do that. The qualifications for that are that you have to spend a minimum of 750 hours throughout a year working on your real estate. And it has to be the largest number, the real estate job has to be the job that you spend the largest number of hours at. So you can't be a doctor and a real right. estate professional. Well, you can if you work more than work more at real estate than you do at being a doctor. So. <laughs> <laughs> Which I actually know some people that I actually do know doctors that do that. And they get audited often. They probably do. They probably do. <laughs> So the, the reason why your spouse being a real estate professional allows you to take your passive losses against your earned income is because when you achieve real estate professional status, their income 
or the the income that's passive is suddenly counted as earned income or active income from the IRS point of view. The IRS is saying, hey, your main job is real estate. So we realize you're getting you know, gains and losses, and usually they're counted as passive or rental. But since it's your full-time job, we're, we're going to allow you to count it as earned income. And if you're a married couple, you, of course, can you know, combine both when you file jointly. income. Yeah, when you file, file jointly. jointly. So that, that that's is a great strategy. strategy. Yeah. The second strategy, and frankly, every single W-2 person should know about this strategy. And it, it is not widely known. Is this it's like a solo 401k? Land conservation easements. Land conservation easements. Back in wow, the 1980s. Wow, I've never heard of this. I neither have I. I can't this, is, this, is going to, this is going to blow your mind. I can't this believe is. this was not in uh, John T. Reed's aggressive tax strategies for real estate investors, this, which is a great read. <laughs> land conservation easements is, in my opinion, the best tax strategy available to full-time workers, hands down. And the reason why is because all it requires is an investment and it will allow you to deduct. Well, let me go through. It it will allow you to deduct 50% of your adjusted gross income off. So you add your W-2, your capital gains, your passive income, and you can deduct up to 50% of that using this strategy. So here's how it works. The land conservation easement was legislation that went into effect back in the 1980s. The idea was is that the federal government wanted to preserve land, you know, for posterity. And they, they wanted it to be undeveloped, untouched, perfectly, you know, just preserved land. It's a land conservation strategy. And so in order to encourage this, they said, hey, when you buy land, if you decide not to develop it, we will allow you to take a multiple of your investment and the appraised developed purchase price. And you will get that as a tax deduction, which you can use to offset your your normal income. And so the way this works is, for instance, let's say the the formula is, is that you have to go and get professional appraisals of what the land value would be developed. You have to have that information. And then you have to have the information of how much money you personally put into it. So let's say I put $100,000 into a land conservation easement. Then at the current, right now, and this is looking like it will change after the the midterm elections. Right now, you get a 5x multiple on your investment. So what that means is you put $100,000 in, you are allowed to take up to $500,000 off your earned income taxes or your overall AGI, your adjusted gross income. And any portion of that that you can't take, let's say you deduct 50% fully, rolls over to the next year for 15 years. So for instance, I participated in a land conservation easement that was a rock quarry. So there was a a group out there that was looking at uh, purchasing this rock quarry. There was marble and granite and other minerals that were in it. They had the appraised value. That appraised, it was syndication. So the syndication purchased it. The appraised value came in and it was a certain dollar amount. And so the amount that we could deduct as a group came back to us. And that dollar amount flowed through to each investor based on their percentage ownership. Okay, so that dollar amount allows you to deduct 
you can take that dollar amount that you receive or up to the amount that you put in and deduct it, the smaller of the two. So anyway, the long story short is, is that for several years, I'll be able to deduct at least 50% of my income and, and write it off taxes. So that's strategy number two. Strategy number three is we purchase an Airbnb home. And if you, the IRS has provisions, and I need to look up the actual IRS number, but if your average stay is less than two weeks in an Airbnb, then it's considered active income. And you can actually take your depreciation on your, on your home off of your regular taxes. And there's a bunch of rules that you need to comply with and your CPA will have to make sure that you do that. But short-term rentals are a great way to reduce your taxes as well. So those are my three strategies for W-2 employees to reduce their taxes. And now here's a word from our sponsor. Get things done while you're on the move. Learn more about working with a virtual assistant through offsite professionals. It's a great way to get all the things done that you need to get done. Have freedom in your time and streamline your life by automating your business. Stop spending time on the tasks that you can delegate and start spending more time on your superpower. Call us today at 503-446-3177 or visit our website at offsiteprofessionals.com. Where's your Airbnb? Sandpoint, Idaho. It's uh, yeah. next, next to Schweitzer Ski Lift. I mean, the problem with my Airbnb is that it makes money even with the depreciation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. We are gonna do a cost segregation study on it. Okay. Uh, so yeah. cost segregation studies used to be reserved for just large commercial properties. They were like $30,000 for an apartment complex. And they've started being advertised more and more to smaller properties. You can get one for a house for like 2,500 bucks now. Well, if you're looking for an even better deal, I know a company called Cost Segregation Solutions, maybe another company that AJ and I own that does cost segs for single family homes. So, okay. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll, uh, I'll follow up with you on that because I need yeah. to get that lined up. Okay. Um, well, yeah, as long as the building value is under 500000 we can do a very cost effective cost seg. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. We purchased it for six seventy five, but off the top of my head, I don't know how much was land and how much was building. Yeah. I mean, most likely the improvements are less than 500. So it'd probably work. Well, cool. I kind of want to jump back just a little bit and getting into, you know, you said in 2015, 2016, you got into multifamily and started investing in other LPs. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience and like what you learned and then why you kind of made the shift and then also, yeah. I mean, I'm not going to lie. If you're working full-time for Intel and part of a GP, it sounds like you're more kind of doing the fun to fun type thing rather than like operating. And then maybe just tell us a little right. bit about that experience and kind of go into that yeah. a little bit. So my business strategy is that I partner with operators and this allows us to have, you know, diversity in our locations. So right, right now we're currently in nine different states. Good Samaritan Capital is not the operating partner for any of these. However, we're actively involved. So for instance, uh, we just sold our properties in Houston. We're actually out of Houston now. And we sold our property in Memphis. We're now out of Memphis. We've got a property in Fort Smith. We have one in Sarasota, Florida, Montgomery, Alabama, Des Moines, Iowa, Lincoln, Nebraska, and Kansas City, and Phoenix, Arizona. So 
what we do is we look for great operators that already have an established track record, who already have a property management group, who already have their uh, renovation crew together. And I participate both in underwriting. So I'm, I'm a numbers guy as an engineer. And I also like talking to tax and, and legal advisors. So I do a lot of CPA and, and lawyer talking. And I work with investors, obviously. So I, I help bring in investors. Uh, so our normal process is, is that we have five or six operating partners that we know well, and they're great in their metro markets. Uh, we work with, with FTW out of the Midwest, with Rise 48 in Phoenix, with Equity Yield Group in Florida, with Atlas Group in Arkansas and Texas. And these guys are great operators, just to drop their names there. You can go out and contact them. But what we do is we partner with them. And when they find a property, they send it to us and say, hey, Daniel, how would you like to be part of the, the general partnership team? I'll do a review of the underwriting. I'll do my own separate underwriting. And then I say either yes or no. After that, we, in assuming that the, the best and final bid is one, we'll fly out to the property. We'll meet the whole general partnership team there. We'll get together and walk the entire you know, all the units that are there with the inspectors, we'll meet the HVAC inspector, the electrical inspector, the plumbing inspector, uh, the roofing inspector. And we get a really good idea of what the property is like. Then we meet with our renovation crew and draw up a renovation plan. That plan is usually mostly, you know, 80% done by the time we're done with our trip to the property. And then when we come back, we put together the final numbers. We plug in all our construction and renovation costs into our underwriting and we create our investor presentation. And then, you know, there's a webinar, we send it out to the investors and the investors get to decide if they're interested or not. We look for a minimum of 15% IRR and 8% cash on cash. Uh, it's been increasingly hard to find some of those numbers, although they're out there. And so we're also diversifying into industrial flex space, which I like a lot because cash flows better and the cap rates are much higher and for other reasons as well. But that's basically our business strategy is we partner with great operators and we bring value to their team and help them out in, in a variety of tasks that can be done remotely. They just you know, our listeners are kind of real estate professionals that are mm -hmm. you know, looking to get into either investing in syndication or you know, possibly operating. I'm, I'm not exactly sure, but can you describe the difference and specifically like to your experience of like, you know, what it was like to be an LP versus this kind of idea of helping an operator raise capital. Yeah. So as, as an LP, your main response, there's, I say there's four pillars of risk for an LP. First one is the sponsors. They're the biggest part of the risk in a deal. As an LP, you need to vet your sponsors. You need to know them. You need to know the people that are running the business and how they operate. And that's really important too, because some operators are sticklers for sending out the distribution every time at the same day of the month, every month. And some take that, that money and put it back into renovations and give you a higher overall return. But whatever their current strategies are, they need to be communicative and communicate well. So it's, it's important to get to know your operators and to be able to ask questions of them. LPs also need to know the market a little bit. They'll learn about that in the investor presentation. So you get an overview of, is there a diversified economy? Is there, you know, right now in Florida, we were looking at a property in Tallahassee. One of the things we liked about it was that Tallahassee, the, the nine out of the 10 top largest employers are either government, education, or healthcare. 
things that don't tend to get cut in downtimes, in, in economically downtimes. So you need to really look at who, who, who's your customer base. And then, of course, the, the business plan itself has risk. I consider this to be one of the lower risks, particularly if you vet the sponsors well. And then lastly, of course, the, the last pillar is the regulatory risk. Are you in an environment where, you know, you're creating a five-year plan and the rules could suddenly change on year three? You know, there's some risk there. And so we tend to invest in the Midwest and South where there's usually lower regulatory risk. Although, you know, there's certainly, it's not zero, obviously. As an LP, those are the things you need to look for. As a GP, you're going to be involved in work. You know, general partners get their equity from working. Limited partners get their equity from capital. And any general partner should also be a limited partner. They should be working and putting their capital in. So as a general partner, you have to understand the process. You have to understand the people you're working with. And it is a lot of work. If you have the capital, being an LP is a, is a great way to go. Nice. And then so kind of when you when you partner with these other operators and I know that you described kind of what you're bringing to the table, but I'm assuming like, what's this, can you describe more of the fund to fund kind of process or deal how it works? Cause I mean, I'm assuming that if you're part of the GP, you're bringing some capital to the table. Yeah. So fund to funds is a very different strategy than being a, a general partner. As a general partner, you possibly could be putting in earnest money or at risk money. You might be signing on the loan. You might be doing you know, other activities, whether you're an operator or dealing with investor relations or dealing with the renovation crew or property management. As a fund-to-fund manager, that's a strategy where it scales really well and it allows investors to get into very large apartment complexes. Good Samaritan Capital has done two fund-to-fund deals this year. The first one was for 440 units in in Arizona, Phoenix, Arizona, Mesa, Arizona. And the, the second one was 460 units in the same location. And we were obviously not the sole fund that was going into this deal. So in a fund-to-funds model, the operator will create a syndication, an LLC. And rather than having individuals be the LPs in the LLC, the fund managers create their own funds and those funds are the LPs in the syndication. So it gives you much more scalability and reach in terms of finding investors. And there's some interesting dynamics to it because each fund is an LLC and each fund also has a management LLC. So there's an LP and a GP in the fund. And then the whole fund itself is an LP in the larger deal. And so In terms of return to investors, when a fund brings in a larger amount of money, you know, two million, three million, five million dollars, usually the syndication will give them a slightly better preferred return or or split. And that that larger amount that they can negotiate for because they're bringing in a larger check allows the fund to meet its operating needs, pays the people that are running the fund and allows the investors to share at nearly the same rates that just partnering as an LP would allow. So the advantage is, is it, gets, it gets LPs into really large deals that have great scales of economy. Cool. And the, the advantage to the fund manager is that uh, you have limited liability. You're an LP and not a GP. So 
The fund to fund model seems to tie very well to, you know, leading a real estate club. How has, you know, running your real estate club kind of progressed your uh, real estate career? So the, the club itself is a purely educational club. I never mention my company unless somebody asks me about it, in which case I'm glad to talk about it. But, and everybody there kind of knows, you know, that I run a real estate club. If, if a speaker doesn't show up, oftentimes I'll pull a presentation out and be the speaker. And so the, the club itself is purely educational and it's there for the purpose of letting Intel employees know of strategies that they can use in real estate. It's educational only. We work with HR in order to, Intel HR in order to vet each speaker that comes in. Uh, they have to get approval from the HR manager, which they're not really involved in. AJ, I know you were just there. Uh, I fill out the form. I send it to HR. I send them all your info and they approve it. And so from that standpoint, it, it's purely educational. And we just have great speakers in that, that teach people different real estate topics. Then, you know, of course, on the side, I get lots of people contacting me. You know, I keep a Word document of all the people who have said, hey, Daniel, I just bought my third rental house thanks to your club, you know, and, or I got an Airbnb. I, I had this one lady said, I, I immigrated from Ethiopia 24 years ago, and I've never been in American real estate. This year, I bought seven houses because of your club. So I love that sort of feedback. It really drives me, frankly. That's my why. And so I, I get to have great conversations with people on the side and I'm willing to talk on any topic that they want to talk about, whether it's short-term rentals, long-term rentals, mortgages, notes, whatever they want to talk about. I had one guy call me and ask me how he can hide his assets from his uh, wife who was divorcing him. <laughs> I was like, you know, I, I will give, you know, you should call a lawyer. <laughs> and honestly, he just needed an ear a person to listen to him. So yeah. I listened to him for a while and, you know, we had a good conversation and I never heard from him again. We ha have a lot of those, but then some, some portion of those people contact me because they want to find out how to be a, a passive investor, you know, and I add them to my, to my email list. And that's, that's one of the main ways I've grown my email list. Well, that's awesome. Well, Daniel, I think we are getting towards the end of this segment. So let's, uh, let's get to our last four questions. Chris, unless you have any, anything else you wanted to touch on. No. All right. Well, a, a great conversation. Yeah, for sure. I, I've learned a lot, so I appreciate it. Uh, I'm going to start us off with the first one, which is what's one piece of advice you would give to your 25-year-old self? Oh, be in the game. Make sure you're hitting singles and doubles over a long period of time. You'll occasionally hit a home run. You'll occasionally have a flop, but be in the game and pick yourself back up. That is just so true. I mean, even if it's the stock market, like the stock market is trending upward, you know, the only way to trend up with it is to be in the game. And so, and the real estate market is even more lucrative than the stock market and you're not reaping those rewards unless you're in the game. So, you know, the other piece of, advice I'd give is, is become educated. Really, there, there are so many strategies out there that will help you take control of your own financial destiny, be in control of your own financial destiny. And personally, my, my personal philosophy is I don't send my money to Wall Street. I like to have it on Main Street with people that are investing in housing and, and other things that are staple needs. Okay. 
I agree with that too. <laughs> All right, our second question. What was your first entrepreneurial endeavor? Oh gosh, so it had nothing to do with real estate. Is that okay? That's totally Absolutely. fine, even better. Yeah, um, <laughs> I mean, there's always the lemonade stand. My kid made 50 bucks on the corner at a lemonade stand just the other week. Which to which I was like, oh my goodness, what are you doing? Anyway, what are you going to do with all this money? We got to pay. He bought a Nerf gun. He bought a Nerf gun. (laughs) So that that was not my first entrepreneurial adventure. Actually, probably the first one was I went to UC Davis for computer and electrical engineering. And my junior year, my networking professor came to me and said, hey, Daniel, you've got a good grade in my class. I want to hire you to be on my Silicon Valley startup. And so I went over there in between my junior and senior years of college. And I worked right on in Mountain View, downtown Castro Street. And I saw exactly why you should never let academics run a business. (laughs) (laughs) So that was a great lesson. They hired, you know, their, their grad students who didn't have any business sense, but they had great ideas. And then they hired people that our marketing manager thought in order to find top quality engineering talent, we have to have top quality office space. So they rented out 50,000 square feet in downtown Mountain View on Castro Street. I forget what the rent was. This was 1999. And the rent was astronomical. And it was like eight engineers and we all sat in one little teeny corner of that. (laughs) But the business was a good business. It was actually the same sort of business that Akamai, if you're familiar with Akamai Technologies, it's a caching on the internet and high availability. And it was good technology, but not the greatest leadership. Nice. That's definitely kind of interesting. Uh, it's, it's not very good. You know, you, you go to school and you're like, you look at your teachers and you're like, have you guys actually ever done this in business? You know, it's, it's great to present the concepts, but in practice, it can definitely be like on the job training. So my next question is actually let, kind let, of... Let me throw in one other thing here because this is interesting. Sure. I worked so hard that I ended up with carpal tunnel in both hands and I had to quit my tech job. I then went to the Chicago Board of Trade and I purchased a seat on on the 10-year bond pit in the Chicago Board of Trade. I traded 10-year bonds for almost a year on the floor. So I I had some really unique experiences there. And that that probably should have been the story I told. But being on the floor (laughs) of the exchange, and everyone knows that the the mortgage rates are largely based on 10-year bonds. And so it was... It was interesting being down there in the pit. Oh, that's fun. Well, maybe you can incorporate that into the answer of the next question, which is how has your formal and informal training shaped your journey? Right. So, you know, honestly, from that experience, it gave me a lot of insight into how the market works. They had ticker tapes with all the news. You saw exactly what the price was. And people down in the pit traded basically on the static of the market is what I would say. Trades would come in from you know, JP Morgan from smaller firms, they would bump the price up, bump the price down. The trader is trying to provide liquidity to the system and to make sure that transactions continue going and by, you know, trading and making a profit. So from that experience, honestly, that I started finding safer and safer ways to invest because being on the floor is extremely high risk and extremely stressful. And there were a lot of broken people there, to be honest, a lot of people that had broken families and were taking upper upper drugs in order to stay there, and it just wasn't a great environment. 
And so from there, I started going into real estate and started looking for ways to find great return with lower and lower risk profiles. The other thing that really shaped me was when I was a little kid, my grandparents owned an apartment complex. And uh, my grandpa worked at International Harvester, which was a tractor company. He was a repair and maintenance guy. He worked there his entire career. And only once he retired... And my grandma, who was the real financial genius between the two of them, said, hey, let's go buy an apartment complex. Only then did he actually have something that he could pass on to the next generation. And so as a 10-year-old, he, he passed away when I was 10. And my parents inherited an apartment complex that they could not pay the inheritance tax for. So it, the inheritance tax at the time was 60% of the estate. So oh they had to pay that up front in order to cover taxes. So they, they ended up having to sell the apartment complex in order to cover the taxes. And they had to sell the farm that was associated with it. So we lost our family farm that had been in the family for 123 years at that point as well. But it, it, it kind of stuck with me later in life that he worked his entire career. And it was only once he retired and bought real estate that he had something to hand on to the next generation. Did, did you also learn that estate planning is an important yeah yeah um, estate planning is critical yeah that's a whole nother podcast right there <laughs> okay well uh we're on to our final question daniel what was your biggest mistake and what did you learn what was my biggest mistake and what did i learn always plan for worst case scenarios and be pleasantly surprised uh, that's probably what I learned in, so when COVID hit, we were in best and final for an apartment complex and we ended up not, so COVID hit the number of transactions and multifamily in the market went down a lot in, in March of 2020. We actually looked at our numbers and said, Hey, with the way things are trending, our underwriting needs to be revised and we need to you know, go back to the seller and say, we can't pay the same price that we offered. And at the time, sellers didn't budge. So what happened when uncertainty entered the market, it caused people who wanted to buy to lower their price, but oftentimes people that wanted to sell didn't want to lower it. So the, the gap widens between the bid and, and, and the, the sell, the ask and the bid. And we lost our earnest money on that deal because the seller didn't want to renegotiate. A little bit later in a different deal, also because of the pandemic, our supply chain was interrupted. We had to wait for three months for our materials for renovations to arrive, which put us behind schedule. And then once they did arrive, the entire renovation crew came down with COVID. <laughs> that put us another two months behind schedule. And we, we did make up that time. That was actually our property in Memphis, Tennessee. And we did make up the time and we just sold that property for, for about a 21% IRR. So, but it, it, it did delay distributions and it taught us how to communicate to our investors when we were having problems. Well, that's awesome. And a good lesson to learn. AJ and I have not lost earnest money on a deal, but we certainly have been close. That's definitely yep. a tough uh, and difficult thing to go through, but just knowing that that's on the line and sometimes it it might be better to walk than it would be to actually close on a property that's just not going to be a success. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is better to walk and it's painful. Yeah. 
Well, Daniel, just wanted to say thanks for coming on. Appreciate all the the knowledge that you brought today. If our audience would like to get a hold of you, what's the best way to find you or contact you or where would you point them? My email address is daniel at goodsamaritancapital.com. Or you can just go to goodsamaritancapital.com and uh, there's a button to schedule a call with me. Awesome. Well, again, thank you for coming on the show and yeah, look forward to catching up with you uh, sometime again soon. Yeah. Thanks, Chris and AJ. Yeah. Thanks so much, Daniel. Look forward to chatting more. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast on WIN, your community of investing knowledge for growth. We hope that this episode has increased your knowledge and added value to your path to freedom. If you would, please take a second to rate us so that we can get more great investors to interview. If you or someone that you know wants to be on, please visit westsideinvestors.com and fill out our form to be on the show. Thank you again and enjoy your day.